0: Motivating people can be a challenge, whether in school, at work, or in the church. Napoleon used medals to motivate his soldiers, and Churchill used the vision of victory to inspire his countrymen during World War II. But the Apostle Paul offered a far different motivation for Christians. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. In Romans 12.1, Paul urges Christ's followers to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, not to die in battle or to fight in a near hopeless situation, but to live in victory. Stay with us now as Dr. Boyce explains the Christian's motivation for offering his body as a living sacrifice for the cause of Christ and His glory.
1: We're talking today about motivation for living the Christian life, and I want to begin by asking a general question that regards motivation. What is it that motivates people to achieve all they can achieve or to use the slogan that the army uses for recruitment to be all they can be? A lot of different answers to that, of course. One of the worst motivators is money. Anybody who studied that knows that you don't motivate people well simply by promising them more money. But there are things that do motivate people. One of them is a challenge. Dale Carnegie in How to Win Friends and Influence People tells of a story that illustrates that. There was a mill manager who was having a great deal of trouble getting the men to produce the owner of the factory, his name was Charlie Schwab, came by and he asked him what was wrong, and he said, "I have no idea what's wrong. I've coaxed them, I've pushed them, I've sworn, I've cussed, I've threatened them with damnation. I've said they'd be fired. Nothing works, they just won't produce." Now well, Charlie Schwab said, "How many heats did the men produce in the day shift today?" And the mill manager said, "Six." picked up a piece of chalk. He wrote a great big six on the ground, and then he didn't say anything else. He just walked off. That evening, the night shift came in. They said, what's that big six doing there on the ground? The mill manager said, well, the big boss was here today. He asked how many heats the day shift made. I told him six, and he wrote it down. Well, they worked hard that night, and by the time the night shift was over, they'd rubbed out the six and wrote a seven. The day shift came in the next morning. I saw the seven. They said, so the night shift thinks it's better than the day shift, does it? They worked as hard as they possibly could. And by the end of that day, they had wiped out the seven and they wrote a 10. Now, Charlie Schwab had achieved a 66% increase in productivity for the day shift in just 24 hours simply by throwing down a challenge. That is one way to do it. Napoleon, the French general, said the way you motivate men is by trinkets. What he meant by that is you give them medals that soldiers would be willing to die, risk their life on the battlefield so they could wear a medal that they could say had been pinned upon them by the emperor. I'd be proud of that. Winston Churchill, another great leader, but uh, British during the Second World War, motivated people by a vision. He had a vision of victory. Nothing was going to shake that. It was contagious, and he shared it with people by very moving words. We Think of some of them, blood, toil, tears, and sweat. That's what he offered them Had a great speech about victory. Victory, victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terror, victory however long and hard the road may be. He spoke of their finest hour. Some of those phrases linger in our memory. Now, the question I'm asking is what is it that motivates Christians to live a Christian life? Or let's put it in the terms of Romans 12.1. That's what we're studying. Paul calls upon us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. What is it that would cause anybody to offer their body as a living sacrifice to God? If you and I were as rational as we think we are and sometimes claim to be, we wouldn't need any urging at all to do that we'd say to ourselves, well, we're made by God. We belong to Him, and moreover, He has redeemed us in Jesus Christ. He's forgiven us our sin. He's given us new life. He takes care of us in this life, and He has certainly given us opportunities to serve. He makes the work meaningful. All of that is perfectly good reason why we ought to serve Him wholeheartedly. But you and I aren't that rational, and we don't often think that way, and so we do need urging. And so that's what Paul does in Romans 12.1, he gives urging, that's what the words say, therefore I urge you, brothers, and then he adds, in view of God's mercy, that's the motivation. Romans 12.1 is an amazing verse, it's one of those verses of Scripture, and it's part of a section of Scripture, the second verse taken with it, that's literally packed with meaning. I've been trying to unpack it. We've been looking at it more or less word by word. We looked at the word therefore first. We saw that it doesn't just stand in isolation there. It's linked up with everything that goes before. What Paul is talking about here follows naturally as the application of all the doctrine that he's talked about in the first 11 chapters. Now we looked at the word sacrifice. We saw that it deals with this great paradox of the Christian life, that the way to live is by dying, not literal physical death, of course, but dying to self and self-interest, The happy people, the worthwhile people, are those who are not living for themselves. The whole world is living for itself. But the happy people are those who don't live for themselves but live for others. And so we looked at the matter of sacrifice. And then we looked at the kind of sacrifice, the nature of the sacrifice. What kind of a sacrifice are we talking about? And we saw, first of all, it's a living sacrifice. That was a novel idea in Paul's day because sacrifices were always dead. And now he's talking about a living sacrifice. That's what he wants us to be. And furthermore, it's the sacrifice of our bodies, not just some abstract thing. He actually wants us to give the parts of our bodies to God to live for him. So we use our eyes to see what he would have us see, and our tongues to say what he would have us speak, and our ears to hear what he would have us hear, and our hands to do what he would have us do, and so on. And then we saw that it also has to be holy, the parts of our body and our sacrifice. That has to be holy unto God. Any other sacrifice is unworthy of the thrice-holy God. And we saw that if we do that, well, then that sacrifice will be acceptable to him, and we will find his will for us acceptable as well. All of that we've seen so far. We're just getting into it. Now we come to motivation. We say, what is the motivation? And the motivation, as I've already pointed out, is the mercy or mercies of God. In the Greek text, the word is actually plural. That's why in the Authorized or King James Version, if you have that, you'll find... But it's translated that way by the mercies of God. I don't know why the New International Version made it singular, because what it's really talking about is God's manifold mercies. A way of saying, I urge you to give yourself to God as a living sacrifice because of God's many, many mercies to you. Now, that's entirely different from the way the world thinks. The world never understands Christian motivation, and the world assumes that the reason you ought to live a good life, if you live a good life at all, is because, well, if uh, you don't live a good life, you'll get in trouble. Or perhaps it will be a little more noble than that. The world might say, well, because it's good for you. You have bad habits, they hurt you physically, and maybe in other ways you have good habits, they help you. That's what the world can say. But when it thinks of Christian's motivation, it really doesn't understand Where we're coming from. J.I. Packer, in that book I mentioned the last time, Rediscovering Holiness, I commend it to you. It's a good one, begins to talk about the world's lack of understanding at this point. He says the secular world never understands Christian motivation. Faced with the question of what makes Christians tick, unbelievers maintain that Christianity is practiced only out of self serving purposes. They see Christians as fearing the consequences of not being Christians. Religion is fire insurance or feeling the need of help and support to achieve their goals, religion as a crutch, or wishing to sustain a social identity, religion as a badge of respectability. He says undoubtedly you can find those motivations in people who are members of the churches, but that doesn't make the motivations Christian any more than bringing a horse into a house makes the horse a human being. He says, from the plan of salvation, I learned that the true driving force in authentic Christian living is, and ever must be, not the hope of gain, but the heart of gratitude. Now, here's the same thing said in other language, John Calvin. He's writing about Romans twelve one explicitly, Paul's entreaty teaches us that men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey Him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. The mercy is the motivation. What is mercy? We've already looked at it because we've already seen it in our studies. Paul discusses it at some length in the ninth chapter of Romans. He does it in the context of God's election or reprobation. It's because God chooses to be merciful to whom He will be merciful. And we looked at that. We saw that as one of three words that are often found together. There's goodness and grace and mercy. Now goodness is the broadest term. God is good and therefore he's good in all he does. He's good in his decrees, his creation, his laws, his providences, and that goodness of God extends to the elect and the non-elect, but not in the same way. The very fact that people are living on the face of the earth and not in hell, even though they don't believe in Jesus Christ, is an aspect of the goodness of God. The second word, grace, refers to God's favor to the undeserving. Now, there's common grace, And that's the goodness to all people, regardless of their relation to Christ. That's what I just referred to. There's also special grace, or electing grace, in which God does all things for the few, those whom he calls to faith. Mercy is an aspect of grace, just as grace is an aspect of goodness, only mercy has this particular connotation. It refers to God's grace to those who are miserable. And when we talk about our misery, we're talking about our misery and our sins. Arthur Pink says, mercy denotes the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Thus, mercy presupposes sin. Now, how do we talk about that? How do we talk about mercy as a motivation? I thought about this at some length when I was preparing this study because I said, well, one way to do it is go through the Bible, find all the texts that talk about mercy, and analyze them. What do they teach us about mercy? You can understand it intellectually. One way to explore the depth of mercy is to do it in terms of reprobation. I gave a conference in Toronto some years ago when I talked about that. It's the unique quality of mercy, that God in showing mercy shows it to some and passes by others, so we could do it that way. But we're not talking about it intellectually or theologically here. We're talking about it in terms of motivation. And so I say, how do we communicate to people today that it's mercy that motivates us to serve God? I think the best way to do that is by illustrations or examples. I want to give you three of them, one from the Old Testament, a second one from the New Testament, and then a third one from church history. The Old Testament example is the example of Adam. Now, you know his story. God had told him before the fall that he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because God said, when you eat of that, you're going to die. The Hebrew text literally says, and the King James Bible reflects that, on the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. So there was the warning against eating, and there was the penalty if they should. Now, we know that Adam and Eve did that, and so when God came to them in the garden for reckoning and for judgment, they were quite naturally terrified. You and I would have been terrified too. Adam and Eve hid in the shrubbery of the garden. God called them out, where are you? And Adam finally came forth, and he said, well, I was naked, and so I hid. God began the interrogation. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat from? God knew it, of course. And Adam had to confess it. He said, I did. But then he tried to shift the blame. He said, the woman you gave me, she gave me some, and I ate. So God turned to the woman. He said, what have you done? She said, well, the devil made me do it. And then God began to pronounce his judgments, and he began with a serpent, and his judgment upon the serpent was a curse. God said, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And he turned to the woman and he pronounced a judgment upon her. She'd have pain in childbirth. And that was the beginning also of friction within the marriage, the struggle of the sexes, what we call it. And finally, God came to Adam what did Adam expect? God had said, the day in which you eat of it, you'll die. He must have expected the execution of the judgment. He was going to be condemned and die. And here's what God said, cursed. He must have been fearful when he heard that word. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorn and thistles for you. You'll eat of the plant of the field by the sweat of your brow. You'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now put yourself in Adam's place after he heard those words. You heard God say beforehand, if you eat that tree, you're going to die. Now God had pronounced a judgment, and there was a judgment. Sin always has consequences, but you see, God had not struck him down. Moreover, even in the judgment, there were words that said he was going to go on living because he was going to have to labor all the days of his life to get his living from the ground. Not only that, when God had pronounced the judgment on the serpent, he denounced the Redeemer to come, one who would crush the head of Satan. And not only that, immediately after this, God takes animals and kills them and clothes Adam and Eve with their skins, and so he provides a picture of vicarious atonement and imputed righteousness because that's what the death of the animals were. It pointed forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, who would die, the innocent for the guilty. And the clothing of our first parents with the skins, that's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed us. You and I don't have any righteousness. All of that done, acted out before Adam. Adam must have been overwhelmed with a sense of God's mercy. He didn't deserve that. What he deserved was death. And instead of that, God, the merciful God had spared him and set a whole life of service before him, so Adam believed God's promise, and he began to live his life by faith in God. He lived a long time. He lived 800 years, raised his family to know God, and so he became the father of the line of the godly patriarchs through Seth all the way up to Noah, who lived at the time of the great flood. That was Adam. The second example is from the New Testament, and it's the example of Paul, the one who's writing our text. Now, Paul was a fierce opponent of Christianity in the early days. He was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees made it their business to keep all the minutiae of the law as they understood it. And so not only was he self righteous, he was a fanatic in the way he went about it. He said, These Christians are trying to destroy the religion of Judaism. They need to be stamped out. I'm in a position to do it. And so he set out to try and kill the Christians. He was present at the stoning of Stephen, thus participating in the martyrdom, of the very first of the Christians to be martyred. And then having done that, he got letters from the leaders in Jerusalem to the leaders of the synagogues in Damascus, and he was on his way to Damascus to arrest any Christians he would find there if Christianity had spread so far, and to haul them back to Jerusalem and try them and presumably put them to death as they had killed Stephen. And on the way, Jesus met him. You know the story there was a bright light from heaven. Saul fell to the ground, blinded, lying in the dust. And there he was, this picture of abject misery. When Jesus of Nazareth, of all people, spoke to him from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replied, I suppose weakly, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now put yourself in the shoes of Saul. What must Saul have expected? It's true that God had not promised to strike him down, as he had said he would kill Adam if Adam sinned by eating of the forbidden tree, but Saul had certainly been on the wrong path. He realized that in that moment, these followers of Jesus were the followers of God. He was opposed to all that God was doing. He was even killing the Christians, the ones who followed Jesus and how Jesus had appeared to him, Jesus the Lord in glory. He must have expected an immediate execution of a judgment. Get out of my way, Saul. You've been persecuting my people. I'm going to defend them. Off with you. But instead of that, Jesus said, now I'm sending you into Damascus, and you'll be told there what you should do. And a little while later, a disciple named Ananias, one of the people that Saul was going there to Damascus to arrest and have killed, came to him and Gave him these words from God. You are a chosen instrument to carry God's name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Was that mercy? It certainly was. And Paul never forgot that it was mercy. That's why years later he wrote to his young co worker Timothy and he said, Here's a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. See, it's because Paul knew he was a sinner, saved by the mercy of God alone, that he gave his body as a living sacrifice to serve God. Now, my third example is John Newton. And you know Newton's story. Newton was raised in a godly home in his very early years. He had a Christian mother, but she died. He went to live with an unbelieving relative who made life miserable for him. He ran away to sea. He became a merchant seaman, eventually he got into the slave trade, and he ended up in Africa, and he says in his autobiography later, there was only one reason why he settled down in Africa, and that was so he might sin his fill. And sin he did. The path of sin is always downhill, and in the case of Newton, downhill meant that eventually he fell into the power of the African wife of the slave trader for whom he was working. She hated all white men, and she spewed out her venom upon Newton. He got sick once while the master was inland trying to gather up slaves, and in his sickness, near death, he was badly treated. They didn't feed him for a while, and then when they did, they brought the food in, they threw it on the floor, so it was lying there in the dust, and he had to get down and eat it like a dog, couldn't touch it with his hands. If he did, they beat him. And they put him in chains at one point. He was actually chained like a slave. Later he described his state in those days. He said, I was a slave of slaves. He was sick, emaciated, weak, He almost died, but he managed to get away, escaped. He got to the shore. You see, he'd escaped the slavery externally, but still he was a slave to sin. And so he got back into the slave trade again. They would take the slaves across the ocean and sell them in the New World, and then they'd come back across the North Atlantic, and it was on one of these return trips from the New World that John Newton was miraculously converted. A great storm had overtaken the ship. They were just rickety wooden ships in those days, and the ship was about to fall apart. The water was coming in through the sides. They tore the furniture apart, nailed boards over the openings in the side. They braced the ribbing, and Newton and others were sent down into the hold to pump water mean you want a picture of misery, that's it. A man who has been sinning openly, violently all his life, engaged in the horrible slave trade, down there in the belly of the ship with the water pouring in, not even able to keep up, sure, that's certain he's going to go down to the bottom and he's going to drown. That was Newton. I suppose he was thinking deeply in those hours, days in the ship. He must have been reviewing his life, all the terrible things he's done. He must have said to himself, Well, God has finally got me now. I've been disobeying him all these years, and finally he's caught up to me. He's got me where he wants me, and he's going to take me down not only into the ocean, but into hell. But you know, while he was down there in the inside of the ship pumping water, God brought to his mind Bible verses that his mother had taught him as a child and thought of them for years. And these verses came back, and while he was thinking about them, they were verses that contained the gospel. Newton was led by the grace of God to believe it, and he was miraculously converted ship survived. They got back to England. Newton left the slave trade. He went to study for the ministry. Eventually became a preacher, even preached before the queen. And you see, he never forgot that he was saved by the mercy of God. He wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. A friend came to him once and his later years and said, you know, there's somebody I have been concerned about. I'm trying to witness to him about the gospel, but he is so lost in sin, I'm despairing of him. And John Newton said, I have never despaired of any man since God saved me. He lived to be an old man, and he began to lose his mind. As he got older, he couldn't remember things. He had to stop preaching because he couldn't sustain a discourse, but people would come to visit him, and he would say on occasions like that, I'm an old man. My mind is almost gone, but I remember two things, two great truths. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. That was John Newton, a man who understood something of the mercy of God. Now, I've talked about Adam and Paul and Newton. I want to talk about you. And I want to talk about you if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you've experienced the mercy of God. I want to remind you of that because that's your motivation to live for Him. How do you describe it? Well, your situation is described in the second chapter of Ephesians. That describes the past, the present, and the future of the Christian. And the past is like this. Verse 1 says, Before God saved you through Jesus Christ, you were dead and your transgressions and sins. That was your case. You were hopeless like a dead man. Secondly, verse 2, you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You didn't even know better. You just did what the world did. You followed Satan, however he pushed or pulled you. Third, verse 3, you were by nature an object of God's wrath. That was your condition. You see, dead in sins, practicing evil under the wrath of God. A little later on in the same chapter, in the 12th verse, he begins to talk about Gentiles particularly, and he said, in your case, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and a foreigner to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. That was your condition. It's hard to think of anything more miserable than that, but now notice what God did. Here's the way it is stated in Ephesians, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what you've experienced if you're a Christian, and that is the nature of our God. He is good, loving, compassionate, gracious, and exceedingly merciful. And that's your motivation. Why should you do anything as hard as giving your body as a living sacrifice to God, holy, that it might be acceptable to him? The answer is it's because of his mercy, because he's been merciful to you. And if you understand that mercy, You're going to say and say with all your heart, love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. And it does, and if you give it, you'll find that the gift will be worthwhile. Father, we are thankful that when you call us to service, you do so in such a gracious way. It would be possible for you to say, you must give yourself to me because I demand it. You might say, you must give yourself to me, because if you don't, I'll do something awful. But that's not the way it's said. Instead, we are to give ourselves to you because of the mercy which we have found in Christ Jesus, our Savior, the one who has saved us from our sins, on the grant that a new sense of that mercy might be with us and upon us, each one, it might have its proper effect on us, that we, again, each one might serve you wholeheartedly because you have called us out of sin into life, out of darkness into light, that we might serve Jesus. Amen and amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road. Lancaster, Pennsylvania 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1 800 488 1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at PO Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario P1B 0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.